Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gidler. And this is episode 13 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 28th of April. And Leon, we're talking to Ben Johnson of Empire today. That's right. Uh, Ben Johnson is a national business manager of Empire. And he's going to be talking to us about how businesses can use the Internet of Things. Very interesting. Internet of Things has been around a while, but uh, it's now got sort of top currency. And uh, then the economist this week is Shane Oliver of AMP. That's right. And he's going to be talking all about markets. So let's listen to Ben Johnson. So what industries do you expect would be impacted by the Internet of Things? People's jobs, it will change. No question, but that's been a story in IT for a long time. So, um, you know, some jobs will change from um, being manual um, to being automated through the process of IT, and that's been going on for 20 years. I think, um, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to argue that those jobs have um, not been replaced by other jobs. The IT industry is massive, and I think IoT is no exception to that, although it is, you know, one of the new things that are going on. We're very focused on, when it comes to IoT, we're very focused on two, uh, sorry, three industries. So we're very focused on uh, mining and resources. Um, the second one is manufacturing and the third one is um, is retail. So I can talk in depth about those three, but the, um, the the other industry that stands out that I'm not playing in, I mean, Empire plays in more generally, but I'm not playing in in terms of IOTs around um, end consumer, local government type IOT solutions. So we don't, we're, we're not playing in that space at the moment. Well, give us an example of how uh, IOT might affect, say, retail. If you look up Microsoft IOT um, on the run, then there's some more number of press releases on a company that we did a lot of work for. Um, which is called Peregrine, who own a, um, a brand called On The Run in South Australia. They're effectively a retail um, organisation and they own a whole number of sort of service stations that um, will store food, um, perishable items that are um, either, you know, need to be warm, kept at a certain heat, like, um, you know, hamburgers and sausage rolls and stuff, or, you know, cool stuff like milk or um, yogurt or cheese. So in that context... Um, food can go off pretty quickly if the if the refrigerator or freezer or um, the warmer is not at the right temperature. That could be because of a configuration problem. It might just be set at the wrong temperature, or it could be a fault with the machine, uh, with a physical, you know, fridge or warmer. So what we do is, uh, or what we did for that client, what we do for other clients as well, um, is put sensors that that sense the um, temperature on those environments um, just to make sure that if there's a a fluctuation, a sudden fluctuation in temperature or the temperature for whatever reason is not the right temperature, then we can intervene by exception and schedule um, an inspection for that machine or um, yeah, or just sort of you know, check it out more generally to make sure that there's no maintenance issues. So look, that's a that's a very real story. Um, there's certainly a lot of press about it if you look it up on the, um, you know, on the net. And that will give you a good idea of what, or at least one or two use cases in terms of, um, you know, retail and IoT. There's plenty more, but that's what we do in that sector. So how about the other industries that are affected by the Internet of Things? Would that include the mining companies in Pilbara and their robotic trucks? Yeah, look, I don't know those ones specifically. Um, so we work a lot with the, the mining companies in Perth, uh, so I can't mention them specifically and what they do because of um, confidentiality, right? But it can certainly affect 
effect. Um, there's a couple of other stories that you probably want to look at like Rockwell Automation. Um, so that's a Microsoft story where Rockwell Automation was putting sensors very deep in the ground, sometimes offshore, you know, sometimes hundreds of metres under the water. And they were checking the um, the condition of devices that were operating like pumps just to make sure that they were right. And that's because it's really expensive to send divers down. As you can imagine, sending divers to do maintenance work very deep underground or in um, you know underwater can be very difficult. Can be expensive. Can be obviously not safe as well. Um, so look using IoT devices and the IoT analytic products to be able to sense what the condition of those of those machines are and how they're operating, not just in terms of vibration, but in terms of throughput and yield and efficiency, um, you know, can be very, very rewarding, right? Are we at the point where the the thing would be able to intervene? Are you talking about failure of certain things? Um, could we get to the point where the thing would repair or reset or do that sort of thing, or are we at there now? You're talking about robotics? Yes, basically. We don't do that. Um, I haven't heard any anywhere significant that um, or any sort of robotics partners that I know of um, that are at the point where you know they could unscrew a, a bleed valve on an engine um, and replace it you know that comes with all sorts of safety considerations you know not it's not just a technical question uh, or a capability question but you know just because you can would you you know so certainly that's beyond me <laughs> but I don't know of anyone who's who's, uh, who's doing that well, one of the one of the interesting things that is that Telstra has just announced it's partnering with Ericsson to create its uh, Network of the Future Transformation Program. Yeah, and I saw that. And they're yeah. using the CAT M1 functionality to allow the Internet of Devo- Things devices to connect to its mobile network. And they're now running CAT M1 trials in Melbourne and Tasmania. So, I mean, what's your view about that? Oh, it's it's a it's a big bet. It's um look, they they are investing in this part of the ecosystem substantially. So obviously, they see value in it, right? I'm not in that part of the industry, but you know they're two very large, very credible organisations making a very big investment in this space. So certainly very good for the industry more generally. Um, you know whether or not they get the ROI that they need, well, time will tell. Whether or not we'll know whether that ROI was as promised in the original business case, we'll, we may never know, right? But certainly the the broader picture um, outside of that one case is that that kind of investment in IoT. I mean that's not a Microsoft thing. Right, that's a, that's a different platform. It's a bigger solution. It's a broader play. It's a different industry. There's a lot of talk about hacking on the internet at the moment. Is the Internet of Things going to increase risk? How secure would it be? Oh, it depends on the solution. So some things don't need to be as secure as you know a vault underneath the ground, right? But um, for things that are secure, you you just need to apply the right level of security and privacy to the um, solution. You know, I mean, one of the risks with these things is that they can be so easily set up and procured that you know if you're not um, diligent, people or companies may not apply the right security to it. But um, you know, certainly common practice um, for data that needs to be secured or privacy data common practice in this industry is um is that you you know put in the appropriate levels of security you know that you know that that should be common practice whether or not that will be the case with the fluidity of the solutions you know is yet to be seen how sort of scalable downscalable would the iot be in other words could a small business benefit from it absolutely 
Yeah, look, depending on the type of solutions, that um, how small is a small business in your view? Oh, something with maybe 20, 20 employees? Mm, questionable. Um, it depends on the tech that they've got and the part of the industry that they've got. Um, I know some um, very small companies in that range that um, actually turn over a lot of, of revenue um, and those solutions... You know, that's, those solutions may or may not be appropriate, but it's just a business case question, right? Certainly, when you get upwards of that amount, in Microsoft particularly, is a really good option for these sorts of organizations, not just the small ones, but the large ones, because it has the ability to scale and it has also um, the ability to opt in and opt out really, really quickly because it's all as a service, right? So I can I can start up a um, an IoT, big data and analytics solution with my credit card and I can do it in minutes. What sort of investments involved? Some people are looking at public data that is already being trapped on sensors. So there's public public information that's coming from IoT devices right now that you can tap into. You can even build solutions on them. But if you have a an oil rig and it's 20 kilometres offshore and it's 500 metres underground, of course, you need to have the right physical hardware and um, and software to be able to accurately monitor that device. So final question, where are we in the growth of IoT? Are we just beginning? Are we sort of... Yeah, absolutely. Look, big fallacy to think that IoT is a new thing. You can have a look at a blog that I've got on, on the Empire website, which talks about IoT and the way that you know, some of the media talk about IoT. It's like it's new. It surprises me because IoT has been around for years. I remember the first IoT solution I implemented was 22 years ago, and it was in a manufacturing environment where they wanted to reduce waste on the production line. And we were trying to monitor the engineers. I was on the engineering team, and we tried to monitor throughput, um, waste, the type of materials used, the speed of the line, the type of machinery used, and we tried to reduce the level of waste and the impact of um, wear and tear on some of the very expensive machines in that in that environment. And instead of just tinkering with the machines and doing trial and um, doing trial runs, we use data. We put sensors on the on the production line right through it, right at the beginning, right at the you know in the middle bits, right at the end. And they sensed everything from the thickness of the product through to the speed of the line. We looked at the correlation between that and waste. We looked at um, you know the type of materials that we used, the temperature, the weather, and we pull all that information together to model what we think the impact on waste would be if we adjusted some of those variables. Now, that was 20 years ago. So have we come very far since then? Yeah, look, the, the compelling thing for me that has only happened really in the last couple of years, and again, I've you know obviously worked for a Microsoft partner, right? the, the thing that's compelling for me is that the Microsoft ecosystem not only helps you um, tap into sensors and devices to work out what's going on in places where you're not, but it, it, it publishes an, uh, that data into an analytics and reporting environment where you can interact with that data and find insights that you probably never thought to look for. And you can do it instantaneously with very little fixed cost a lot of times. And you can even do it in the context of experimentation until you get it right. IoT solutions that do these things is not new. Plugging them in to plugging these solutions in end-to-end in the cloud in a secure environment so you can use it not just for 
production, but also for experimentation. You know, that that's genuinely new and doing it with the world-class tool set, you know, which you would have known earlier this week, got voted number one in terms of BI in the world. You know, all of that is new. This would have taken, so this took months and months and months for us to set up 20 years ago and we got it right. But it took, you know, it took a long time. There was a lot of hardware. There was a lot of trial and error. There was different products in the market that we all had to stitch together. One was around looking at the device. One was around getting data off the device. One was around processing that data. One was a database to land that data. You know, one was a reporting tool. <laughs> you, know, you get the picture, right? It was all on premise. They all had servers and they weren't as sophisticated as now. And they all, so we stitched together the solution bit by bit and we learned along the way. Now, you just plug it in, right? <laughs> it's a really, and you do it and you can scale the environment up and down. If you don't like it, you can switch it off and come back to it and you don't have to pay for it. That is revolutionary. Ben Johnson, thank you very much indeed for your time and for your insight. It's terrific. So the Internet of Things, uh, I think the human race is becoming redundant. That's right. It's right. Well, it's, it's a fascinating thing and it's got fascinating uh, applications for business. Indeed it has. And now Shane. Well, Shane Oliver, the markets have reacted strongly to the results in France and Donald Trump's tax reform proposals, although US stocks eased back this morning in response to what's been outlined. What's your view? I think what we're seeing is uh, ongoing strength in markets. And uh, there's a couple of things happening here. One is that a lot of the worries, and this has been pretty much the story this year, there's been these worries coming along every so often, you know, what will happen when Donald Trump becomes president? Um, What about tensions with China? Uh, Issues with North Korea more recently, um, the French election, the Dutch election and so on. Uh, A bit like last year with uh, the Brexit election and Donald Trump's victory. Um, All of these things have caused a bit of nervousness um, along the way. But at the end of the day, things haven't quite panned out as badly as some has feared, had some had feared. In fact, on many occasions, they've panned out okay for markets. And in the meantime, we're seeing this ongoing improvement in in the tone of the global economy, which in turn is underpinning stronger profits. So all of those things, I think, are helping to underpin markets in response to, in relation to Donald Trump's tax plan. Um, I think all he's doing there is basically reaffirming what he promised to do through his election campaign. And uh, he's basically saying, uh, we still want to do it. And that, of course, has kept markets reasonably happy. Now, of course, there's always going to be a, a sense at points in time where the markets have bought on the rumour and then you get a sell-off, sell-off on the fact. And I think that's what we saw um, once that announcement from Donald Trump's Treasury Secretary occurred, that because it had been sort of factored in, investors then said, OK, well, there's no surprise here. And there was a bit of profit taking. But at the end of the day, the backdrop for global growth for investment markets uh, looks to be reasonably positive, And that's uh, that's helped to buoy markets generally. Indeed, it's fascinating to see how much geopolitical events are now shaping markets. Yeah, there's certainly uh, been a, um, an increase in the importance of geopolitical events. Um, investors are a lot more wary about geopolitics than perhaps had been the case in years gone by. Um, perhaps that's been a trend that's been underway for several years now. It was certainly evident last year with uh, major geopolitical events in relation to Brexit rather and, and the US. And of course, uh, investors... Yeah, concerned that those sorts of shocks will will continue. But interestingly, so far so good. You know, the feared populist takeover in Europe hasn't happened. Donald Trump still seems to be focusing on on his pro business agenda. We could argue that Donald Trump, the pragmatist, seems to be dominating. Donald Trump, 
the populist, although these populist aspects pop up every so often with a tariff slapped on uh, softwood imports from Canada. But at the end of the day, it seems as if your geopolitics is out there as a big worry. One day it might uh, turn into a, a bigger concern, but um, so far so good geopolitics have sort of turned out to be non-events. So despite these geopolitical concerns, the fundamentals are still strong. I mean, US corporate profits are coming in very strongly, as they have in Australia. That's right. Well, the, the fundamentals are the key thing to watch here, and they are pretty robust. If you look at US corporate earnings, the uh, March quarter results, which are in so far, we've seen about 35% of companies reporting so far, 78% or so have exceeded expectations, 68% have exceeded expectations regarding uh, revenue growth, and they're pretty good numbers. Profits uh, will now be up for for uh, three quarters in a row in the US, sorry, four quarters in a row in the US of rising sequential profits. Profits will be up about 12% on where they were a year ago, and they're at record highs. So that's, that's what's underpinning the US share market and similar story in uh, in Europe, in Japan. We've seen a return to growth in Japan that's underpinning profits in the, in Japan and likewise across Asia. And it's the same story in Australia. Australia is sort of a bit, a bit different in the sense that we, we get these huge swings as a result of resources companies. But um, bottom line is, as we saw from from the February reporting season in Australia for the last half of last year, that uh, the resources profits have gone from being big negatives to to a lot more positive. And of course, that's not going to be sustained necessarily. We're not going to see uh, 90% or 150% profit growth coming out of the resources stocks and ever rising iron ore price. And as we've seen recently, that's not going to happen. But at the end of the day, if the Aussie economy continues to improve, that should also help industrials take over from resources is a key driver of profits going forward. Nonetheless, there was an interesting report from BMI during the week saying that iron ore was heading to a multi-year low down towards uh, 2021. Westpac has downgraded the price for iron ore and it says it will be somewhere around $41 in 2018. And Goldman Sachs is telling investors that BHP Billiton is a sell. Well, it could be. I, I guess I'm not a stock picker. Um, I think a lot of these analysts were, were surprised um, at the extent to which the iron ore price rebounded from a low of $37 a tonne at the end of 2015, the tail end of 2015 when commodity prices were slumping, to its recent high of $95 a tonne, which of course was back in March. A lot of people were surprised by that. They, they then revised up their forecast, probably got a bit carried away on the upside. And now, of course, we've seen the iron ore price settle down into the mid-60s. My feeling is that the supply of iron ore, which will continue to pick up in the years ahead, will probably cap the upside. But by the same token, if the global economy continues to, to grow at a slightly stronger pace than we've seen over the last few years, then that should underpin demand. And my, my view would be that we're probably going to see the iron ore price settle around around 70 maybe 75 dollars a ton so i'm not in the uh in the in the in the super bear camp i think we've seen the lows on iron ore and most commodities um but by the same token i don't think we're in an environment like we were in the 1980s where it sort of took off and just kept going for many many years i think that's not going to happen simply because the supply story is is a lot stronger this time around than it was back in uh in last decade. Well, $75 is a lot higher than it is now. Are you saying that it will plateau at that level? Bear in mind here that uh, forecasts for commodities are often uh, subject to huge error. But my base view is that $37, uh, which was the low 
back in 2015 was was too low and probably got, had gone a bit too far. $95 was too high. The level which will probably end up ranging around over the next few years will be around $70 to $75. So yeah, a long period of sort of range-bound iron ore price. So I'm not in the, uh, the ultra bear camp, but I'm not in the ultra bull camp. I, I just see relative stability in uh, commodity prices going forward as supply, increasing supply caps the upside, but um, reasonable demand sort of provides some support on the downside. Well, it's very interesting because you've got all this volatility coming through. At the same time, you've got this very strong fundamentals. So it's anyone's guess which way the markets are going to go. What's your view? I I think the trend is still up for markets. So I think, you know, if you you think about it in a big picture sense, you know, we had the GFC, which started almost 10 years ago. Now, I always think it started around August of 2007 with that first big shakeout in markets through August 2007. And then markets peaked, share markets peaked in October or in Australia case early November 2007. So we're coming up for the 10-year anniversary of the start of the GFC. Historically, if you look at uh, major financial uh, crises like that, it often takes a a decade or so to get over them um, because of the shock to confidence, both uh, on the corporate side and the consumer side. And you know, we're probably at the point now where memories of the GFC are starting to dim a little bit and the impact on confidence, the dampening impact on confidence will start to fade. That in turn tells me that we're probably starting to shake off the malaise on growth that we've seen over the last, uh, or since the period of, since the GFC, basically. You know, we had that good bounce coming out of the GFC and global growth, Australian growth, and then it fell into a, a sort of a, a weak sort of patch ever since, you know, 2010, 2011, the Eurozone crisis, the, the debt crisis in the US, um, the downgrade that we saw in, in August of 2011, um, and various things along the way have kept growth very subdued. Um, but I think we're now finally breaking out of that, that uh, as we shake off the confident impact of the GFC, then we'll see more business investment globally. That in, in turn will underpin more employment, which in turn will underpin stronger consumer confidence and ultimately underpin better global growth. So that in turn, I think, will help support share markets to trend higher over the next year or so. If you look historically, some people might say, well, the US share market's at a record high. Surely it must be about to crash. Um, historically, um, major crashes in share markets invariably come with recessions. Not always, but most of the time there's, there's a recession around. But if you also look historically, a lot of the pointers to a recession are just not there. For example, in the US, um, one indicator I like is their leading index, leading economic indicator, which is produced by the conference board in the US. It's only just got back to its pre-GFC highs. Historically, after that indicator attains its pre-GFC highs, it takes about six years before the next recession comes along. So if we only just got back to the pre-GFC highs, this is indicators like housing starts and money supply growth and so on. If those indicators have only just got back to pre-GFC high, that obviously tells me, um, I'm not going to say that's a precise number, but it could be three years away or, or seven years away or eight years away, but no reasonable environment in terms of growth and profits remains favourable. So therefore, I think the trend in share markets remains up. Could we see a correction in markets? Um, we're coming into May. We all know the saying, sell in May, go away, come back on St. Ledger's Day, which is in September. Yes, so we are coming into a weaker seasonal period for markets, but I, I think if there's any correction in markets, you know, a, a pullback by 10%, I'd probably be using that as a buying opportunity. Well, there is a view that if there is a correction, that mightn't be such a bad thing because the Dow is now up around 20,000. So if it goes 10%, it'll be down around 19,000. So that's not such a bad thing. 
What's your view about that? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I, I like the idea of periodic corrections because they let steam out and stop the system from building up to a point where some would say, well, it's become a bubble and everyone is convinced that the only way is up. Um, and I think that's often an unhealthy situation. So I kind of like the idea of periodic corrections. So yeah, if there were a 5 to 10% fall, um, yeah, that would probably be healthy. Um, let a bit of steam out of the markets, keep people on their toes, stop us from getting too complacent. Um, and then if I'm right on the underlying fundamentals then uh, the, the, the rally will resume again and we'll, we'll eventually go up to new highs, but it, it, it will have uh, stopped things from pressure from building up a bit too much. So yeah, I, th- I think corrections are healthy. Obviously, I wouldn't want to see a bear market, and I don't think we will see one, but a correction is not necessarily a bad thing. Shane Oliver, thank you very much for your time. It's been my pleasure. So, Leon, what do you think about that? Well, it's very interesting. He uh, he says the mar- geopolitics does influence the markets, but he says the fundamentals are still very strong. And as he said, it's not going to be that bad if there's a correction. Yeah, well, you mean reality is going to set in finally? Well, yes, that'll be very interesting. Fascinating conversation, as always, with Shane Oliver. And now the news. What do you got, Leon? Now the news. Well, Gary, uh, global stocks have hit record highs, reflecting investors' relief at centrist Emmanuel Macron's victory following the first round of the French presidential election and speculation of Donald Trump bringing in tax cuts. The result averted investors' nightmare scenario of a Eurosceptic-only runoff, which would have devastated the European Union and rattled global markets. At the same time, there was a sell-off in safe haven assets with risk receding. Gold fell, heading to its biggest drop in seven weeks, the yen also performed badly. While US investors might still be worried about a potential government shutdown on Saturday, the concerns might have eased after Mr Trump backed off on his demand to secure funding for the war with Mexico this week, clearing the way for lawmakers to strike a deal to avoid a government shutdown on Saturday. I guess it's going to be all right. As for France, I don't think Marine Le Pen doesn't look like a possibility, but it depends very much apparently on who stays home and not votes. Well, that's right, but also they've got legislative elections in June and so Macron, if he's elected president, is going to have profound issues because 40% of the French population voted for a Eurosceptic either on the right or the left. And um, though Macron is not uh, as dangerous as Le Pen. The problem is that he doesn't seem to have much of a policy. That's right. Now, the other big piece of news is that the White House has confirmed that US President Donald Trump plans to cut corporations tax to 15%, a rate lower than the plans now being developed by House Republican leaders. This will more than halve the US corporation tax rate of 35 And it's fascinating because what's happened this morning is that the list for the tax overhaul was unveiled by Trump's top economic advisor, Gary Kahn, and Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, calling for slashing the federal income tax rate to 15% for corporations, small business and partnerships of all sizes. It also imposes a one-time tax on about $2.6 trillion in earnings that US companies have parked overseas. The plan would end the taxation for corporations' offshore income by moving to a territorial system in which most profit, foreign profits would be exempt from US taxes. At the moment, US taxes business income no matter where it's earned. On the individual side, it proposed condensing the existing seven income tax rates to just three, cutting the individual top rate to 35% from 39.6%. It would also end a 3.8% net investment income tax that applies only to individuals who earn more than 200000 a year, repeal the alternative minimum tax and eliminate the estate tax, which currently applies only to states worth more than $5.49 million for individuals and 10.2 10. 
$1.98 million for couples. At the same time, the plan eliminates the federal income tax deduction allowed for state and local taxes, a provision that would hit high earners in high-tax states, including New York and New Jersey, and the only itemised deductions that would be preserved under the plan would be for home mortgage interest and charitable contributions. This is touted as the biggest tax reform in US history. But, but of course, all of this comes at a time when the Republicans are planning to repeal and replace Obamacare. There's no sign that this, this still has to get through Congress. Revenue is going to be down. And uh, the US budget deficit will be down. And uh, Mnuchin is saying, well, we'll make up for that with growth. Well, here's hoping. Now, Gary, the price of iron ore will be low for the next few years, according to BMI Research. The research firm says that the surprise rally in the iron ore price that took it to near $100 early this year will be the high point for the commodity for the next decade. It forecasts that prices will sink lower each year through to 2021. Westpac has forecast the iron ore price falling to an average of US $62 in the third quarter and US $59 in the final three months of the year before falling to a low of US $41 in 2018. Goldman Sachs Group attributes iron ore's price drop to mills destocking, traders being forced to sell the commodity as prices began to fall, as well as a decline in steel margins. Yeah, the big stockpiles in China are having some effect on this. Now, consumer confidence has fallen again on the back of low wages growth, rising geopolitical risk risks and falling expectations for the economy over the next year. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index extended its loss for the second week, fell 1.24% to 111.2, below its long-run average. Households' expectations for economic conditions next year registered the sharpest drop. It fell 5.3%, taking the index to its lowest level since February 2016. Expectations for economic conditions over the next five years rose slightly to 0.2%. These figures are still close to the lowest level for 2017. Household views towards their current finances fell 1.2% and views about future finances fell 0.6%. And uh, the issue, Gary, is that while wages growth is soft, we're going to keep getting this. Now, Australia's inflation rate has edged up in the first three months this year, driven by higher fuel and health costs. Headline inflation rose 0.5% over the first quarter to an annualised rate of 2.1%. And underlying inflation, the measure most keenly observed by the Reserve Bank, which strips out volatile factors, remained weak. It edged up 1.8% over the year. Now that tells us that the Reserve Bank is going to sit on interest rates. Housing affordability has sunk to a new low, according to research from Moody's. The ratings agency found that rising household incomes and low interest rates were not enough to offset increasing house prices. According to Moody's, household incomes increased by an average of 1.6% and average mortgage interest rates declined by 0.35 percentage points over the years. All this was outweighed by the 6.4% rise in housing prices. On average across Australia, households with two income earners needed 27 7.9% of their monthly income to meet monthly mortgage repayments in March 2017. That's up from 276 in March 2016. Sydney remains the least affordable city in Australia, with 37.5% of household income needed on average to meet monthly mortgage repayments in March 2017. That compares to 30.3% in Melbourne, 239 in Brisbane, 23% in Adelaide, and 19.9% in Perth. Moody's said housing affordability deteriorated in Sydney, Melbourne, and Adelaide, where housing prices increased the most over the year to March 2017. And while new regulatory measures to restrict interest-only mortgage lending will have some impact on demand for housing, particularly 
Apartments, Moody's says that upward pressure on housing prices will continue in the near term and the low in, in the low interest rate environment. Now, another interesting piece of news is that Australia is eyeing the prospect of a free trade agreement with Hong Kong. Trade Minister Stephen Siobo is taking the first step towards getting one in place by calling for public submissions on the FDA proposal to free up regulatory barriers for Australian firms. Hong Kong is the region's gateway to Australia's biggest trading partner, mainland China. Hong Kong was Australia's eighth largest export market, worth $11 billion last financial year, with total two-way trade in goods and services worth $15.3 billion. And of course, whether there is a free trade agreement with uh, Hong Kong will depend on uh, Beijing. Investment banking giant UBS says Australia's booming property market has peaked. The UBS economics team says this cycle is different. Usually it takes a hike in interest rates to stop prices from rising, but UBS said mortgage rates are rising and sentiment of home buyers collapse has collapsed to a record low. They forecast that the residential building book will peak at its current level in the second half of this year before easing back to in 2018. They say residential building boom will top out at roughly the current levels in the second half of this year before starting to ease off in 2018. They point to the number of cranes on Australian high-rise sites plateauing at a peak of 548 before sur- after surging 323% since late 2013. But they saying while the property market will ease off, they're not forecasting a crash in prices. Prices have been surging 13%. UBS is tipping price growth of 7% in 2017. And Gary, that means properties will still remain out of reach for many first-time homebuyers. Now, Spotless has spurned Downer EDI's $1.2 billion takeover offer. Spotless told shareholders they should reject Downer's offer of $1.15 per share, saying it was opportunistic and time to take advantage of a historical Spotless share price low, that it was hostile, highly conditional, and not certain to proceed. The Spotless statement also said that takeover talks with other parties, including detailed discussions with the global facility services company, had come to nothing. Now, strong demand from China has given A2 Milk a strong start to June half sales and will deliver a better-than-expected earnings. Uh, the company said that stronger-than-expected infant formula sales in the March quarter delivered revenues of uh, New Zealand $388 million, that's $357.5 million Aussie, in the nine months to the 31st of March. The company now expects sales for 2017 financial year will reach uh, New Zealand $525 million. That will be well above the consensus of analysts on Bloomberg of sales of New Zealand $511 million. And A2 says it's been working closely with its infant formula manufacturer Sinliat Milk to uplift the production schedule for the remainder of uh, financial year 2017. So it's all being driven by China. As we've always expected it would be. And that's it for this week, Gary. And so next week we've got we're talking to Grant Barker, a change management consultant. His company's called State of Matter. Apparently a lot of companies don't handle change very well. So it'll be fascinating to talk to him. In the meantime, you can get on to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.